Welcome everyone to my weird little podcast where myself, Pia, and my friends talk about weird stuff and we say weird things and we're just, we're weird to be, to tell the truth. Um, <laughs> I'm here with Patrick. Hey, oh, that's my cue. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, just don't say anything. Echo, echo. I know, I know. It's been bugging me. Your eyebrow is all yeah. messed up. It's yeah. like one of them. It's just like trailing okay. down. Let's do the beat. I'm here with <laughs> I'm here with Patrick. That's me. Hello. And today we're talking about some weird things. I don't know what Pat's talking about today. Um, it's been a long hiatus since the last time we recorded. Um, so if you haven't noticed, most of the times we record is when my mental health is good. And I feel like recording. So we're good. We're in the clear today. Not going to go psychotic on anyone. It's going to be fine. <laughs> it's going to be fine. Um, no, I just go through times where I need to give my other podcasters a break. I need a break. I'm mentally done. You know, just done for talking about true crime and you know, whatnot, you know, some of you might not understand because you can listen to this stuff every day. And I appreciate that so much because you're the people listening, but it gets to a point where I can't do any more research and I'm just done and I need a break for like two weeks or longer. Um, I also got a new job. I no longer work at the Beak Boopin's uh, haunted spoopy place here in Las Vegas because of, uh, disagreement with management i'm just going to say that as intensely and awkward as possible um so i went somewhere else that appreciates me and appreciates my tour guiding and uh i now work at a place that restores vegas's sparkly history i don't know i don't really want to say where i work on uh, the internet out there with all of you, but it is a historical place here in Las, lovely Las Vegas, and I still get to tour guide, and I'm very happy about it. Some of you know, some of you have, are my friends, my real friends in real life, not saying that you're not my real friend if you're a listener. Okay, all right, we're going down, <laughs> we're already get, going down that not mental health spot, and I need to get this story out, so um, <sighs> my squeaky chair. If you hear in the background, that is not a fart. It right. is a squeaky chair that I'm sitting in. It's not our neighbor having sex. I would sit in a different <laughs> chair, but this chair is so comfortable, and I don't want to sit in another chair. <laughs> I just don't want to do it. For our listeners, um, it's a gorgeous pink uh, rocking chair. Yeah. yeah that swivels. It's got like, what's that? Like Embroidered seashell. seashell scallop design on it. But it's like super comfortable. Super it's, comfortable. We have another one that's very similar, but it's green. But it's it's comfortable, but that the pink one's the probably pink one's a so softer. Comfortable. Yeah, so nice. Just fit it on the butt. Sure. It's nice on the butt. That was for our listeners. Speaking of things nice on the butt, no, I'm just kidding. That has <laughs> oh, nothing man. to do with my story that, if that was today. A segue, that would be All right, amazing. okay, no segue into my story. Um, I am talking today about the Lake Michigan Triangle. That's where you're going to put in, like, a spooky sound there. Right. Lake Michigan Triangle. Right. And that's where you make my voice echo. Okay, right, good. Yeah, yeah. Got it. Ah, the squeaky chair. Okay, all right. I'm moving. Here we go. I'm getting on it. You're going to go with the stool. I'm just going to sit on the ottoman. Okay, right, all right. Go. Here we go. One more time. The Lake Michigan Triangle. Creepy music. So, uh... I don't know if you've, you've never heard of it. I'd never heard of it either until a couple days ago. And also, at the same time, a couple days ago, I was like, crap, I need to start recording more podcasts because if I don't get podcasts out by October, um, my 30 listeners are going to be very upset and maybe never listen to me ever again. And it was a whole thing. And luckily, I came across this. Uh, I watched several videos on YouTube, mainly weird History was one. Um, another one that I think is my par paranormal life was the other one. Oh, darn. I should have had these names together. Um, but you can 
watched some of this stuff on YouTube. Mostly I took most of my notes from Weird History because I, I couldn't find anything on Wikipedia, which I was surprised that Wikipedia didn't even mention this phenomenon. Yeah, um, I couldn't find any... I found several articles online, but they were very brief in talking about this. So most of my info is from YouTube. So take it as it is. Most of these things are weird circumstances that all happen in the same place. So I already did an episode on the actual Bermuda Triangle, and I believe that it's on Hollywood's Haunted, the podcast. And most of what happens in the actual Bermuda Triangle can be chalked up to the fact that it's an area that um, the waters are particularly rough sometimes. Um, they don't get any more disappearances than any other place. It just seems to be in a more concentrated spot, mostly because there are a lot more ships and planes that go through that area. Um, so, you know, you can take it with a grain of salt. However, it's fun to have conspiracy theories. Like, it's fun until they hurt people. Um, but, you know, um, you know, until we're, you know, QAnon-nanonning. But, um, but Bermuda Triangle, Michigan Triangle, conspiracy theories um, hopefully will not become the soul of your existence. So, um, so... I digress. The Michigan Triangle. So it's on the Wisconsin. Uh, so on the Wisconsin side of the triangle, it goes from Manitowoc to the Michigan side of Ludington uh, to the north. Ludington is to the north and then Benton Harbor to the south. So Manitowoc, Ludington, and Benton Harbor. That is the triangle there. So if you're from Michigan and you know what I'm talking about, that's it. That's the spot. Don't go in there. Don't go near it. Um, so back in, so these occurrences date back to the 17th century and up to things happening in the 70s and, you know, um, some discoveries were made in the early 2000s stuff happening in 19 in the 1920s so like this could, has gone on for quite some time of there being disappearances of ships and other things but i will talk about that so so back in the 17th century a french vessel disappeared with the tide never to be seen again uh so the french explorer rene robert Chevalier Sewer de, de La Salle, sorry I butchered that, um, start, started working on a massive ship designed for animal fur hauling and he named the ship Le Griffon. So de Salle and the ship uh, de, started setting sail on August of, in August of 1679, so the Le Griffith uh, was traveling from Niagara to, oh God, yeah, right. you're seeing the word, Michelmac, Miniac, Michelmac, Michelmac, because I know Mackinac is uh, Mackinac Island. That's right up there. So. Possible. So the, yep. Um, <laughs> so if you're from Michigan. I'm so sorry. Um, not because you're from Michigan. I'm sure Michigan's <laughs> great. Um, but because I cannot pronounce a single thing, I'm struggling with the word Michigan. So um, so some historians say the ship had larger ambitions uh, beyond its outpost to discover a Northwest passage to China and Japan. But unfortunately, the Lake Griffin vanished while traversing the Michigan Triangle. LaSalle had already departed the mainland and his six crew members were left on, uh, departed at the mainland and the six crew members were left on the ship. Uh, so, uh, sorry, nope, Re redo that whole line. I fucked that up. You're gonna have to edit that. Uh, LaSalle had already departed the mainland uh, and his six crew members met the same fate as the ship. Oh, yeah. No, that makes sense. Uh, so so he, LaSalle was not on the ship. 
but the ship disappeared, all six members never to be seen again. In 2001, though, a researcher named Steve Liber, Libert, Liber, found uh, what he claimed to be Le Griffon's bowsprit uh, at the bottom of Lake Michigan. The It had sculptures of griffins on it, so that seems like a pretty good coincidence that this was actually Lake Griffin. Um, but it has yet to be verified. The rest of the ship has never been recovered. So that's like the first disappearance. Who knows what happened? The ship disappeared and parts of it later were found in the water. So it sank. No big deal. Not that big of a deal. Uh, just mysterious. On September 8th of 1860, a wooden hole side Hold side wheel steamship P.S. Lady Elgin collided with a much smaller schooner, the Augusta, which was loaded down with lumber and headed for Chicago. The smaller ship seemed untouched after the collision. The Augusta continued to Chicago as if nothing had happened. Uh, the Lady Elgin took on more and more water, though. Hundreds of sleeping passengers and crew began their evacuation efforts. Witnesses said shipmates did everything to plug the hole, but nothing worked. 300 people perished as a result of the crash, and uh, including the captain, Jack Wilson, who spent his final hours saving as many passengers as possible. Wow. So... Um, I did not find anything if that ship has ever been recovered, but people saw it go down. So that's not as much of a mystery there. But that is one, another ship at the bottom of the triangle. In 1870, a 100-foot schooner, uh, Thomas Hume was the ship. Thomas Hume. Um, Ships had full names, I guess, apparently back then. I know, that's so cool. Nowadays, yeah, people are way... Flexible with the ships. It's like yeah. The dream now. Yeah. Thomas Hume. Uh, it was part of a fleet of ships that belonged to lumber baron Charles Hackley. So it uh, disappeared in the Michigan Triangle in 1891, sailing alongside its sister ship, the Rouse Simmons. The Thomas Hume embarked from Muskegon to Chicago with a large shipment of lumber. After delivering the wood, both ships turned around to venture back to Muskegon. Having seen storm clouds in the sky, the crew of the Rouse Simmons decided to turn back and stay in Chicago, but the Thomas Hume kept on towards home, never to be seen again. When the Rouse Simmons returned to Muskegon two days later, there was no sign of the, of the Thomas Hume at the harbor Hackley and his business partner put up a $300 reward. It's probably a decent amount of money in 1870 uh, for information on uh, the Thomas Hume's whereabouts. Uh, the ship and seven crew members were never seen or heard from again. The Rouse Simmons later succumbed to Lake, the Lake Michigan Triangle as well. The ship and 16 crew members and Captain Herman Schooneman were sailing from Thomas, Michigan to Chicago to deliver a load of 5,000 Christmas trees, but the boat never made it on, uh, on November 23rd. The boat was seen flying a distress flag in clear conditions, which is strange to say the least. When a rescue boat arrived at the location, there was no sign of the Rouse Simmons. Wreckage from the ship, including tr Christmas trees, and the captain's wallet washed ashore the following decades. On October 1971, the Rouse Simmons was finally found by scuba diver Gordon Kent Bell, Bell Richard. Gordon Kent Bell Richard off the coast of Two Rivers, Wisconsin. So that ship was discovered. But yeah, you know, a lot of ships, the, the uh, you know, the waters they don't mess around you know they're they're probably particularly rough um and 
stormy, you know? So that's what I get from this so far. So far. Dun, dun, dun. Um, in 2005, a professional recovery diver, Terrace Lesquito, found the remains of the intact Thomas Hume shipwreck. Uh, several es- experts have theories on what happened, most likely capsized in a storm, like I just said. So nothing too crazy so far. Just a bunch of ships having some bad luck uh, in a particular spot. In late October of 1921, the Rosabelle left High Island, Michigan, on bound for Benton Harbor, but the ship encountered some kind of disturbance along the way, and wreckage was found 42 miles away in Milwaukee. The ship's 11 crew members were never recovered. Some people claim that the Rose Bell met its demise in a storm. Others believe it was involved with a, cl- a clash with another vessel. However, there's not much evidence. So here's where, okay, now that's going to be our last ship mysteriously disappearing. From here on out, the story takes a slight turn where things get a little more eerie. So um, George R. Donner, he was the captain of a coal-powered vessel named McFarlane. Love it. So in April of 1937, uh, the McFarlane picked up its shipment of uh, coal uh, from Barrie, Pennsylvania. The ship had no problems traversing the Great Lakes on its return voyage until it arrived in the Triangle. Dun, dun, dun. So the captain, George R. Donner, he retired to his quarters on late April 28th to get a few hours of sleep. When the McFarland's first mate knocked on the captain's door, um, he had no response. There was no answer. They were trying to get a hold of him. So um, they were approaching their destination and um, they need their captain. So they his door is locked. They're knocking on the door. They can't seem to find him in his room. So they start searching around um, the galley looking for him. They cannot find him. So they're like, okay, well, he's in his room. He's locked himself in his room. So maybe he's in trouble or drunk or something, you know. So they decide they're going to break down the door. When they break down the door, guess what they find? Nothing. They do not find him anywhere. He is never to be seen again. It's probably like a portable window too, right? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if there's, you know, big bay windows on you this ship. You know what I mean? Like, you ship, know, but, probably not. Yeah. Um, it's probably not a big window. So, I don't know what happened there, you know. Was he doing something weird and like looking out the window with halfway up to his waist? I don't right, know. Exactly. You know, who knows? But he disappeared inside a ship with his crew on the ship didn't just you know slip by them you know right. very like, strange probably, yeah it's not like he's like locking the door and then shutting the door yeah that's weird so in 1950 flight 2501 was flying over lake michigan uh particularly over the triangle uh, from new york to seattle the plane had reached the eastern shoreline of lake michigan On June 24th, the plane's captain, Robert C. Lynn, requested clearance from air traffic control to descend 2,500 feet in order to avoid a lightning storm. His request was denied. Short time later, the plane vanished. Lind, two crew members, and 55 passengers uh, were never seen again. Um... No, parts of them were, actually, but I'll get to that. Uh, At the time, the plane went MIA, and uh, a local on the ground told reporters that he saw a red flash uh, out in the lake. Uh, The strange light was seen by plenty of other people as well. Uh, Here's a quote from uh, one of the witnesses. It was a funny light. It looked like the sun when it goes down. It only lasted a second, and then it was gone. Bits of debris and scattered remains washed ashore. 
Fiction writer Clive Cussler funded an annual underwater search for the plane, but they never recovered anything. So. So is it like pieces were lost from the show, but they didn't recover the whole one plane? No, they've never recovered the entire plane. So pieces, but uh, people and their stuff, but yeah. So the red flash has led people to believe that it could possibly be some sort of extraterrestrial. However, lightning is a very strange phenomenon. Lightning can make literal balls of fire. And I forgot what they're called, but uh, it's very interesting. And a lot of people will mistake these balls of fire for UFOs. Now, is it like Nope, where it's the UFO disguising itself as a ball of fire? Um, Who knows? Spoiler. 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 (laughs) Um, I mean, it sounds like a red ball. I mean, that sounds like an explosion. Well, yeah, they said it was a flash of red light. So that sounds like some sort of impact explosion, which maybe lightning hit the plane and it... Well, that's what I'm thinking, yeah. Yeah. So I'm thinking that's part of the Michigan Lake, Lake Michigan area, um, just has particularly rough weather, you know, um, and bad shit happens. Um, you know, that's just my theory. I'm just trying not to go down, uh, go down a rabbit hole too much. Um, so some stuff does get weird though, especially this story here. So this is like, uh, yeah, this one. Anyways, so February 1978, West Michigan resident Steve Kubaki was reported missing during a cross-country skiing expedition. On the search for Steve, they discovered a set of footprints that led to the eastern shore of Lake Michigan that ended abruptly at the shore edge. So as if he had walked to the edge of the lake, and raptured like with his clothes and everything no um (laughs) so they found his skis in his backpack nearby most people assumed that he had fallen through the ice however um the ice was particularly thick during that season so um however steve was to be seen again Steve woke up in a grassy field 15 months later, 700 miles east from where he disappeared in Pittsville, Massachusetts. He had no memory of the last 15 months, and uh, all he remembered was reaching Lake Michigan, and then everything cuts out, and then he's in a grassy field, and it's over a year later. So Steve refused to do any interviews or talk about it after his rescue. I don't really blame him, you know, like that's a lot to miss a year of your life, let alone be a media, you know, frenzy, the target of media. So that is who knows what happened there. That is a mystery, you know, so, um, UFO sightings are very common in Michigan. This is a spot that does get a lot of UFO reports. Now, is it the red fireball lightning that I'm talking about? You know, is it the fact that skiers go missing (laughs) and pop up in a grassy field? Is it actual things they're seeing? Who knows? So according to WOODTV, which I think is the most Michigan name (laughs) of a of a TV channel. I've never been to Michigan, but I'm imagining of a lot of flannel. Um, and the <laughs> fact that their local TV outlet is called Wood TV um, is just um, very funny to me. Um, sorry to anyone who's from Michigan. Um, uh, but according to WOOD TV, based out of Michigan, police have been fielding complaints about UFOs. Uh, over the Michigan Triangle since 1913. Uh, In 1919, the New York Times reported uh, two balls of fire falling into the Great Lakes, which is like what I just said, could possibly be uh, lightning. The Sausalito News in California noted that uh, the impact was heard all the way 
to Indiana. Wow. Yeah. So on March 8, 1994, hundreds of Michigan residents reported seeing disc-like objects floating uh, over them with flashing lights. One witness was a local uh, National Weather Service radar operator, and he told police, I've never seen anything like this, not even when I'm doing storms. These are not storms. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, in 2007, an underwater Stonehenge was found. I'm going to let that sink in. Sorry. That's where music's supposed to happen. Okay. okay. Yeah. Under, so, um, so, Stonehenge is, you all know what Stonehenge is. I'm not going to tell you what Stonehenge is. I don't really know it, what it is, so I'm not going to try to explain it. Um, it's been a mystery to people with the purpose of Stonehenge. Um, I'll talk about what my theory is for it and for this uh, in a little bit. In 2007, underwater Stonehenge was found uh, by archaeology professor Mark Hawley and his colleague Brian Abbott. Uh, discovered the circular stone arrangement in 40 feet of water while using sonar technology to search for shipwrecks uh, in the Lake Michigan Triangle. Along with uh, the, so along the sides of the rock, so along the outside of the formation was a boulder uh, with prehistoric carvings on it. And it is believed that it is a carving of the is extinct mastodon mm -hmm. suggesting that the formation could be several thousand years old so it's believed that this could possibly be so there's this thing oh god i should have looked up the actual name for it but hunters use it as like a trap to uh herd like buffalo or deer or, you know animals that kind of sometimes can be in groups to get them to go to a certain place down a certain path and then get stuck in between rocks because cows and other sort of animals will not cross barriers even lines they their brain instinctually will not let them cross lines so sometimes they can use a formation of rocks to stop them so that's a way of getting them in a cluster making it easier to hunt so that's my fear on what this is. The fact that it is underwater in Lake Michigan is fascinating. Don't know if it has anything to do with UFOs or anything. Um, there hasn't been much that I've seen about them studying this. The fact that that has a picture of a mastodon on it is pretty awesome um, because that means that it is quite old. Um, but... Yeah, so that is the Lake Michigan Triangle, and some weird stuff happened. Um, I would love to visit Michigan and see what kind of t-shirts they sell at the Michigan Triangle, um, you know, so yeah, I kind of want to do more research into Michigan because I know, now that I know that UFO sightings are a big thing out there, that's like definitely something I want to talk about. Coming up later in October, we're going to do an episode on cryptids, and I haven't quite decided what cryptids I'll talk about, so maybe I'll talk about something there. However, I do, there is something in my hometown area, which is Monterey, California, that I do want to talk about, so, but we'll get to that later. Um, so that was actually really fun, because that was the Lake Michigan Triangle I'd heard about before, but I didn't really know anything about it. The trippiest one is the... The guy being taken out of the room for me with the door. Or locked. disappearing yeah. from yeah. his locked From locked room. cabin in a boat. On a know? boat? Yeah. yeah. Like that's that's trippy. Uh, speaking of which, Dungeons and Dragons last night. We're on a boat now. Um I know my listeners don't care, but we do Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> we're motherfucking dragons and dungeons. We we're not dragons, no. <laughs> we are uh, we are a cat, a wolf, a ghost and a fox, a person, and a demon. We are that. That is a thing. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, and our DM, um, <laughs> and our wonderful and Josh, Josh, <laughs> and a Josh. Um, so we're in a boat now, and we need to discuss that later. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll which I'm kind of speed, excited yeah. about that because I had suggested something to Josh down the line, um, which uh, I hope he includes. So. Uh, we're we'll trying see. to we're trying to help out find the lighthouse monster oh, okay. so we have to go speak to the fish people. I oh okay. I suggested that we should come across mermice. They're part mice, part mermaids. <laughs> what the fuck? Um, because I thought that'd be that kind of cool because you're you're a cat that's character, that's and that if we're headed towards your area, there would be mermice. Like in, this, yeah. like super delicacy for cats. Yeah. Awesome. I should send him the picture again because he might have forgot that I suggested mermaids. <laughs> um, but I thought that'd be fun to come across like mermaids, but they're mice. I mean, it sounds semi horrifying. No, it's like yeah, it's <laughs> ma- mouse on top, mermaid on the bottom. Okay, yeah, it sounds not the other creepy. way around. I mean, <laughs> yeah, they both sound really weird, but <laughs> it sounds cute to me. Anyways, right. Anyways. Um, um, what are you talking about? So speaking of. Uh, water and you know and weird creatures um mine also takes place in the water uh not in a lake though this one's in the ocean uh, and before i get too into it i got this 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 will kind of kind of tell you whereabouts my story is from uh from the dictionary of sydney.org that's sydney australia uh wikipedia of course um I got Sydney, th- Australia, not the person. Not good old Sydney. <laughs> Dictionary of Sydney. That's he's, like, just like, <laughs> he's just this guy I know. He's just... Imagine this like old, like tiny old guy with this really big book. Right, yeah, exactly. It takes all his yeah. effort to open up and like dust comes off the book when he opens it. took it. a really long time to research yeah. this for sure. Because yeah. he, he turns the pages um, <laughs> <laughs> and then posts it online. Yeah, I forgot this is a website. Um, uh, Wikipedia said and Vice. That's actually a great article on Vice.com. I love when Vice does videos. That's a lot of the stuff, like the pufferfish toxins video mm-hmm. that I did. They're they're pretty good with like vetting their information too. Yeah, you know, like, or, and like putting it in a way that's non not biased, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. kind of fun still. But yeah. No, yeah. their their documentaries are really on point. Um, I think I was yeah documentary first, then I got into their articles. Um, but yeah, so yeah, this takes place in Sydney, Australia. Um, at a place called Coogee Beach. Mm. Um, in the spring of nineteen thirty-five, this was a rough time for Australia. I mean, I guess for everybody, this was the Great Depression. You know, this era still. You know, but prohibition was lifted, yeah, mm, by that time. But right, yeah, but that doesn't really affect Australia, Australia. yet. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, so yeah, the Great Depression. People don't, you know, kind of forget sometimes that like it wasn't just an American problem. You know, production stops anywhere in the, you know, in the world. You know, that affects everybody in the world. You know, so yeah. everything went down because was it? I think I read it was a uh, wool and steel i think it was were the two like major exports of australia at the time Mm. so since there was no demand there was no work um so yeah this is a uh this is also (laughs) right after the horrific pajama girl murder you ever heard about that one no i thought i thought i I immediately after researching it i was like Putting this on my bank for a next episode. For your mur- next murder surprise. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Sorry, no murder surprise this season. Mm-hmm. There's only ghost story surprise. Ghost and story surprise. And on Hollywood's Haunted and then Cryptid Surprise. Cryptid surprise, yeah. We're, ch- this, we're, you know. we're changing up yeah. our surprise. It's, it's surprising. Only so many parfaits to be eaten. Exactly, <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah. Um, sorry, let me get a drink. Um, so, yeah, the pajama girl murder, uh, if you're not familiar, which I wasn't either, uh, this woman was found very badly burned. She was shot in the neck um, and then beaten severely, obviously, and she was found with, like, a towel wrapped around her head uh, in her extremely luxurious uh, silk pajamas. Oh, I have heard of this. Yeah, I was about to say, like, um... this... 
Um, there's definitely, I think I found a, like an article on like BuzzFeed about yeah. it. Yeah. So I figured. Gabalosis did a video. Oh, that's right. That's right. Recently, because there was some break in the case recently. Oh, interesting. I'll, yeah. I'll have to ask, uh, ask about that later. Yeah. Because I'm curious. Yeah. Darn, I'm going to have to find. Cause I, I watched that a couple days ago. So, But luckily on YouTube, they do have the library. You can go back and see your videos. Anyways. That's true. Yeah. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> so. And uh, I'll talk about it to oh any God. of my friends who are listening. <laughs> Australia's on da- hard times, I guess, basically, is what this uh, <laughs> what they were trying to get across on that. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people would go to the Coogee Aquarium, um, which uh, opened in 1887 as an entertainment center for less jaded patrons. And at this point, the aquarium wasn't really an aquarium. It was mostly a bathhouse. You know, like, there's, like, a pool, and you could, you know, shower, you know, bath and clean yourself in other pools and stuff like that. Like, oh, okay. Because this is, yeah, 1887, so this wasn't really, like, like, aquariums weren't really a thing at the time, you know? Hmm. Like, aquariums in the sense of the way we think about them, you know? Yeah. Um, so in came one of uh, Sydney's hottest attractions, which was a four-meter-long tiger shark at the Kugi Aquarium that had weighed nearly one ton. Uh, the proprietor at the time, Bert Hobson, and his son set out in the harbor to find a new star for their 25 by 15 foot pool. Uh, so this was um, something they were kind of starting to do. So shark attacks apparently were on the rise that year. Um, so this gave the public a chance to see one of these you know, monstrous beasts up close, which is something we still fawn over today everybody's trying to capture a great white to put in an aquarium because everybody wants to see like the most vicious thing you know in the world up close mm-hmm. um so they came home with the four meter long tiger shark and the public quickly you know swarmed the aquarium to check it out um, but apparently uh it became very agitated uh, after the first few days uh, it became extremely ill and that's when it vomited vomited um, a human arm. Uh, when the police were called, they were convinced that the shark arm incident was a prank, uh, either by the staff or medical students that had had you know time to actually access cadaver parts. Um, but no one was laughing as the arm with the boxer tattoo and suspicious rope tied around the wrist was fished from, was fished from the water and then brought to the coroner's office. Uh, things grew worse when the coroner reported that the arm hadn't been bitten off by the shark at all, but was actually severed by a blunt knife in a suspected act of foul play. Oh my god. I feel like I've heard of this. Probably. So, yeah. this person was hacked up, and then the shark just ate the dead body floating in the water. Floating in the water, yeah, exactly, okay. yeah. That's, that's what's happening here. Mm-hmm. Right. So, the police had you know, who is this arm and how did it get here? Mm-hmm. Um, so the uh, finding the owner of the arm was not easy. Um, this is the 1930s, so forensic technology was like extremely lim- limited, you know. Uh, however, a brand new fingerprinting technology was able to link the arm to a name. Um, grueling work, but the man was Jim Smith... Uh, uh, who was actually came up with it, um, who was a criminal and police informant. He had previous brush-ups with crime, and he was uh, um, his brother confirmed the identity of the arm by the boxer tattoo when the Im- image was published in Sydney's Truth tabloid. So this is like the front page of their paper was shark vomited an arm, and they actually mm. put the picture of the arm, and so you could see the, what the tattoo is. You know, Jeez. that's how that's what's the craziest part about it is like this shark could have eaten tons any part of this person mm-hmm. and they would have no way of tracking it down you know but because it ate a specific piece of the arm and it, the tattoo remained intact this was the only way of identifying it yeah which is pretty i guess sort sort of lucky <laughs> in a sense like luck in the only sense of this story i guess um sorry where was i uh so um 
So, sorry. Uh, before his uh, criminal life and brush-ups with the law, Smith was a boxing hopeful and was forced to leave his dream fight behind when it was clear that he wasn't... He, he just didn't have the professional-level talent. Um, he was good, but not good enough to be a professional. So he went from job to job, where he landed work in a pub, where he started developing connections with the criminal underworld, which actually happens a lot in the criminal underworld, is they recruit former fighters that weren't wouldn't be, go on to be pros. Um, one of these connections was a wealthy boat-building businessman named Reginald Holmes, who was one of the last contacts uh, Smith would ever make. He was a man of many titles, uh, in addition to being a well-loved family man. He was also a respected member of the society. He donated to church. Uh, he was an active heroin smuggler, uh, an insurance and business fraud mastermind. Holmes was also involved in construction, where he employed Smith to carry out different tasks, like cheating the builders out of their supplies or over-insuring property before putting it on a path of destruction through arson or whatever way he would destroy it. So he was working several different crimes at one time. Um, had a lot going for him. Right? The operation had Holmes clandestinely wiring money over to Smith after each job. Uh, it went under the ill-fated Pathfinder scandal sunk. Uh, sorry, until the ill-fated Pathfinder scandal sunk their relationship um, faster than the overinsured luxury yacht uh, that he apparently sank as well. <laughs> when Holmes filed the fraudulent paperwork to insure the ship and sent Smith to destroy it, he didn't know that he reported the destruction as suspicious to police. The insurance fell through, and Holmes found himself out of pocket. Um, there was the mastermind and the muscle to get these jobs done, but they also required a master forger, which was where Patrick Brady steps in. He was a longtime friend of Smith. He also was in the insurance fraud um, scandal game, I guess. Um, even though he did come from a very wealthy family who was you know, not known for that, but that also made him an easy way to do it because no one would suspect him. Um, so he he started working at the Sydney Harbor Harbor with this you know new criminal trio. And the operation continued despite Holmes falling behind in his finances. Uh, once the Great Depression hit, it was clear to Holmes that he had to cut off this expensive loose end. So one evening, Smith told his wife that he was going fishing. A few restless nights later, his wife grew agitated. One night, she received a mysterious call from a man. Don't worry, Jimmy will be home in three days' time. Jimmy never made it home. Uh, when the police looked into the case, they had little to work on. Uh, unable to determine the exact cause of, test, uh, cause of death, they had to follow the other leads. Um, they knew that Jim Smith was last seen drinking and playing cards with Patrick Brady at the Cecil, Cecil Hotel in Australia. No, no, Not, no relation, no to, relation the to the other Cecil Hotel right, yeah, exactly. Los Angeles. Watch, there's like a Cecil Hotel, like, you know, like... Conspiracy. Conspiracy. Let's every start every it. Let's start it. <laughs> now you guys can connect this to Elisa Lamb because there's zero connection. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> All right. Um, so they pursued Brady as a lead. They found that he had resent, uh, rented a small cottage uh, at the time that Smith was missing. All signs seemed to lead the cottage being the place where the foul place the foul play actually did take place. Working theory was that Brady used a boat to dump the body in a trunk in the ocean after the arm was severed, which makes sense. They began investigating uh, what Brady did that day leading up to the disappearance, and they found cooperative taxi drivers who were willing to discuss the trips Brady made a few days prior to the cottage rental. Uh, one of the last trips Brady took blindsided investigators with a new shocking lead, the resident of Reginald Holmes. Until that, now they had not been aware of any connection between Brady and Holmes. Uh, so this was finally the one connection was that the taxi driver did take him to the, his home. Um, when the cops nabbed Brady, they got him on completely unrelated forgery charges. Uh, they needed him in the station, but they lacked the physical evidence to detain him for the crime. Um, they investigated him for over six hours. He was for sure that he didn't do it. It wasn't until they questioned his sobbing wife that Brady's uh, cold demeanor softened. He finally agreed to issue a statement. Uh, he asked a, for a pen and paper, then wrote down everything the cops were already wise to, including his collusion with Holmes. To get ahead in the case, investigators needed to tackle it from a different angle. So it was time to go after Reginald Holmes himself. 
which was another dramatic twist. Holmes ripped out his beachfront home into the harbor on his speedboat when it became clear to him that police were on the approach. Cops were quick to speed out after him, but each time they came near, Holmes would abruptly jolt off again. He attracted a crowd near Sydney's harbor who watched the hot pursuit go down, which is so funny. Like, Because, you know, you see car chases on the news and stuff, but like being able to witness a high-speed boat chase, you know, like <laughs> from the harbor. I mean, that's, that's especially when there's not <coughs> TV. Right, yeah. Well, I mean, just I'm saying like the fact that like, you would never think of witnessing a boat chase, you know, like, because yeah. there's a lot of cars on the road. Even back then, there would be more than one car, but I'm sure there wasn't, like, a million boats on the ocean. Like, where are you going to go? You know what I mean? The, yeah. how, how do you get away? Like, you yeah. know what I mean? Eventually, you're going to get caught, so. Uh, finally, Holmes killed the engine and stepped out before the crowds, pistol in hand. Uh, reportedly, he ordered, reportedly, uh, he uttered his cryptic phrase, Jimmy Smith is dead. And there is only another left. If you leave me until tonight, I will finish him. It was clear that he was under the influence. Uh, if his behavior didn't make it clear, the empty bottle of gin at the bottom of the boat certainly did. The cops braced themselves for a firefight, but in the end, Holmes raised his pistol to his own head and fired. And he fell to the water as the police converged. But shot didn't kill him. Apparently it just literally flattened on his forehead. So I don't... Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, so it hurt, I'm sure. Uh, so defeated, he turned himself over. Uh, Holmes, who was initially thought of as to be the mastermind, told investigators a different story. He told them that Brady was the man who killed Smith, uh, of course. Um, he also claimed Brady brought Smith's severed arm in a grisly attempt to blackmail him for a sum. Holmes, describing details of the cottage on Loomby Street, told them that he knew more than he let on. Police threatened him with an accessory to murder charge to get his inquest in court, to which he agreed. However, Holmes would never make it to court. On June, on the morning of June 12, 1935, the coroner's inquest was set to start soon, so the police approached Holmes' resident bringing to court, but they never even got to the door. They found Holmes slumped over in his car in the driveway with three gunshot wounds into the left side of his chest. So someone took him out. Uh, it didn't take long for them to piece together what the insurance mastermind Holmes did, uh, he must have hired a hitman and taken out a contract on himself. Of course, wow. of course, he didn't put this into play until after That's he secured. Smart, yeah, yeah, so he <laughs> secured a hefty life insurance policy for his own life. The policy was an applicable oh. under suicide, and his death would ensure that his wife and children wouldn't be subjected to the public shame of his conviction. It would be his last successful case of insurance fraud. The Brady trial went went off without him, uh, but on flimsy ground. Those presented included Smith's wife, Holmes' wife, and a few of the cab drivers that were testifying against uh, Patrick Brady. As the proceedings went on, the most glaring issue was the lack of a physical body. They had the arm, but no one could prove to the judge that Jim Smith was actually dead, or if he was wandering around in an armless stupor. <laughs> um, when it was decided that there was enough evidence to proceed, the case itself had an even shakier prosecution. The problem was that Brady was never a violent man. He was charged with lesser crimes like forgery, but never pinned for assault. Standing at five foot four and being a slight man, it was also unfeasible that he would be able to take on Smith by himself. Smith was a much larger man, a boxer in fact. A day and a half into the trial, the prosecution fell apart and Brady was acquitted of all charges. Walked away a free man. Hmm. So the shark, ar the shark arm case, which it is still called today, was never officially solved, but there are a few standing theories. A few years after the case, Brady's wife admitted that she had gone to the cottage that Brady was staying at, suspecting that he was seeing another woman. She claimed that she overheard not two, but a group of men drinking and playing a card game. No one could ever confirm that these men were there, but Australian historian Alex Castles argued that the murder likely took place at the cottage, but Brady himself was out fishing at the time and returned to find Smith dead. He would allegedly keep silent about this, fearing for his life. If Brady didn't kill Smith, he would have at least had a good idea who, who did. He would take his secret to the grave in 1965. Until his death, Brady was the sole survivor of the shark arm case. In an interview with Vince Kelly, a leading crime journalist in the 60s, Brady explained that the case followed him to his death, suspecting that people around him would whisper, whisper that's Pat Brady. 
One of his his last statements proved to be true. The shark arm case will never be forgotten. It will be remembered after I'm dead. Yeah, so that's just a shark arm case. Shark arm case. Which which I thought was uh, crazy just because it was so long ago. And uh, it really, if it wasn't for the tattoo, this wouldn't be a case. You know, because there was no way of really identifying the body. Like, they could still do prints and stuff, sort of, you know. But, I mean, in an arm that's been underwater for so long. Yeah. I'm sure that, you know, doesn't help. Wow. Yeah, pretty trippy, right? Yeah, that's a good one. Right? Yeah. I got I got a few few gems in there. That was probably one of my last ones, but I'll have to start researching again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. So this was the one underwater. The yeah, one. The yeah. one with. The one with water. The water one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, there's gonna be a couple episodes coming out. Uh, this month and next on Hollywood's Haunted the podcast as well as this podcast my weird little podcast Uh, I have at least two more planned for this month so listen to both podcasts Uh, if you are interested in stuff Hollywood related we have Hollywood's Haunted the podcast if you are interested in weird stuff you are already listening to the right podcast and uh, please email us at hhthepodcast at gmail.com with any suggestions, you know, friendly letters of appreciation. Uh, follow us and, on. And if you could email us at hollywoodshaunted at gmail.com. Hollywoodshaunted at gmail.com. <laughs> Sorry, Patreon is HHThePodcast. Yeah, um, Patreon.com slash HHThePodcast. Yes, yeah, what he said. Um, <laughs> you can look at my Instagram of my weird little podcast. Um, I have a TikTok as well, and, you know, that's it, and weird Twitter, um, yeah, so, anyways, thank you all for listening, creep it real, word.